Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Numbers, chapter 20 this morning. Good morning to you in Wilmington. Welcome. We're in Numbers chapter 20, and we're going to be closing out the series, our time in Numbers, this morning. So we're not at the end of the book. We'll come back next year and and, uh, round it out. But we are at an important place, uh, a place, uh, a good point to, uh, to close our time. And to appreciate that, I think what I'd like to do this morning is step back and look at the book as a whole for a minute and get a little bit of context about where we are today. So we're going to be in Numbers 20 today, but where is Numbers 20 in the big story? The book of Numbers means in the wilderness. We call it Numbers because there, and I don't know the plural for this, there are two censuses, or is it sensi? I'm not sure. But there is a census in the beginning of the book, and there's a census at the end of the book. And in between that is the, the 40 years of wandering. And in other words, the first census implies, here's the number of the Israelites when they left Egypt. That's the basic idea. And then the second census is, here are the Israelites as they're heading into the promised land. And in the middle is uh, their time in the wilderness. The book itself has an odd arrangement, which makes it hard for the, if you, you know, want to read the Bible in a year, Numbers is laid out in a way that sort of discourages your efforts, but maybe understanding it a little bit will help. It has sections of narrative, and then it breaks a section of narrative with um, law, teaching, you know, what to do on a sacrifice, how to make a Nazarite vow, that sort of stuff. So it gets narrative, and then it'll It'll break the narrative up with a section of teaching. I'll show you here. So the census is in chapter 1. Right after the census is a section of teaching. How did they travel? What was their formation like? Who carried the ark? What are the duties of the Kohathites? All of those sorts of things are in those following sections. And then when the narrative picks back up, it picks back up in the ninth chapter when the people celebrate Passover at the mountain of God in the second year and, and depart for the promised land. And that section goes from 9 to 14. And that is a, a lengthy narrative section. They leave the mountain and uh, celebrate Passover, leave in chapter 10, arrive in 13 and rebel and refuse to go in in the 14th chapter. That's sort of how that section of narrative takes place. And then we get more law. So another kind of break in the narrative. And Numbers uses these breaks to sort of stretch the book out a little bit. After that break in the narrative is the wandering in the wilderness. And we saw that in chapters 16 and 17. That was what uh, we looked at last week. And in these chapters, uh, I just, I thought before closing out the series, I'd let you see what the wandering land looked like. These are actual pictures from the land of wandering uh, of the Israelites. This is where they actually were, minus the electric power lines or the litter. Uh, This is where they wandered. You can see it'd be really difficult for, it'd be impossible for a people to create a sustained living there. 
So this is the environment in which they wandered. And that's described, well, the land's never really described. It's just described as what it isn't. It's not Egypt, and it's not the promised land. But the wanderings of the Israelites is described in chapters 16 and 17, the sins of Korah that we talked about last Sunday. But then there's a break. There's a break in the text, and we get more law. So the 18th and the 19th chapter are yet more law. And then in the 20th chapter, where we are today, narrative picks back up again and goes all the way to the second census. In other words, the section we're in today belongs with, if you think of how it's connected to the second census, belongs with the end of the wandering. Which sort of makes understanding dates a little bit squirrely here. Because if they're not wandering until after the 14th chapter, and when it picks back up in the 20th chapter, is all of the is the heart of the 40 years kind of embodied in 16 and 17? Yeah, it is. It's a little bit unusual. The 20th chapter starts with this phrase, in the first month. And trying to place it, in the first month of what? What does that mean in the first month? There's, if you do some work and some research and grab the whole book and sort of process it, you can start to, to frame it. Later in, uh, in the 20th chapter, at the end of the 20th chapter, Aaron the priest is going to die. His death will be recorded there. Well, later in the book, chapter 33, there's a summary being given of here's everywhere they went and what they did. It's this one chapter summary. And it gets down to the death of Aaron, and this is what it says. It says that Aaron died in the 40th year when they came out of Egypt. Aaron died in the 40th year. Chapter 20 is the 40th year. Chapter 20, verse 1, is the first month of the 40th year. If you sort of put the times here, the way they count years in Israel is from them leaving Egypt. So when they left Egypt, the Lord said, this is the first day of your first year. The first day of the first month of your first year starts now. That's how uh, the Hebrew calendar is built. And so Passover was year one, month one, in the early weeks of that, the seventh day, around week one and week two there. And then they left They go to the mountain of God. They're at the mountain of God for almost exactly a year. In the second year of the first month, they celebrate Passover and then they leave. So second year of the second month, they depart. They get to the promised land. By inference, we figure out the whole body of the wilderness, the 38 and a half years roughly, is sitting, is essentially brushed over in the book with 16 and 17. It's like God doesn't really care to tell you what they did for all 40 of those years. He wants you to understand why did they get stuck with it in the first place and how did they come out of it? What I really want to point to though is chapter 20 is the first month of the 40th year. 
Imagine being Moses. Over these years, over these 40 years, thinking when, day, when year 40 comes, there's hope for us. When year 40 comes, we get to go back into the promised land. Like in the 40th year, all of, everybody's counting on that. The people are banking on it. They know it. 40 years. Chapter 20 starts in the first month of the 40th year. There's also something interesting about uh, chapter 20. <clears throat> I have the verse up here for you. Notice where it ends. This is what it says. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. Now, I don't expect people, uh, I don't expect very many people to remember where Kadesh is. So I'll, I'll remind you. Do you remember when they arrived at the foot of the land of promise and they sent spies in? And those spies came out and they reported about the land. They said, the land's as God said, but there's a lot of people, big strongholds, they're giants. We could never do this. We shouldn't go. And it was right there that the people said, we're not going in and God sold us a false bill of goods. You know where they were standing when they did that? Kadesh. Think, imagine being Moses. Imagine being the people. Think of the irony or the profound reality that in the first month of the 40th year, you are standing back in the same place as when you said to the Lord, we are not going in. I want you to imagine Moses as, he, as he's following the pillar and leading the people as they're sort of winding through the years and the years are dialing down and people are dying off. Think, if you were 20 and older, in this fellowship, when the sermon series started, you'd be dead by now. I mean, all, of, all the people 20 and older have died, except for Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron. Miriam dies in the very first verse of the chapter. Aaron dies in the very last verse of this chapter. I mean, the whole generation's been turned over. You are back where you started, right at the brink of the land of promise, just as God said he would do in the very first month of that year. How would you feel? I think I'd have a lot of excitement. I think I would say this time we're going to get it right. Let's see what happens. As you listen, if you've been around for the study in numbers, I want you to listen for patterns. I want you to hear, recognize things. You'd be like, oh, I've heard this before. I, when you find yourself going, I know it's going to happen. You found it. Okay? I am just going to read verses 2 to 5, okay? And so stick with me. Don't read ahead. You'll ruin it. <laughs> Verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? 
And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Let's stop there. Did I mention it's the first month of the 40th year? Did I mention that they're standing in the very same region as when the Lord said last time, go up, take it. Moses, you're evil. It's, it's like a broken record. I mean, if you've been around for this series... It's like a broken record. How many times do we have to hear this? How many times does this faithlessness sort of come? Did you bring us out here to die? You would think that they're out in the middle of nowhere, abandoned when they are in the first month of the 40th year, standing at the very, very place that God had them in order to bring them in the promised land. Wish we'd been back in Egypt. I wish we were dead. I mean... Yada, yada, yada. We've heard all this. They describe, they say this place is no good for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates. Do you want to know how Moses describes the land of promise in Deuteronomy? This is how he describes it. Take a look. Barley, that's a grain. Figs, vines, pomegranates. If they had listened the first time, they'd have it. Do you know how they said, and there's no water here. You know how Moses, just one verse in front of this in Deuteronomy describes the promised land. Just look at, look at the water in the promised land. If there is anything that we learn from Numbers if you wanted to step back and go, what is the message of numbers? This is, I believe, the message of numbers. That we as people, we as individually and collectively, have a near miraculous ability to disconnect our lot in life with our sin. We, we don't, we, things are not turning out the way we want. Things aren't the way we would have them. There's a sense of dissatisfaction in our life. And yet we almost to a magical degree, can fail to connect our difficult walk in life with our difficult decisions in life, our wrong decisions in life, our moments of faithlessness, either of us or our, our family context or whatever, our community. I mean, you keep going out and there's levels of sin that affect the brokenness of our community. That's the first thing. The second thing is, that people are also, we are also unnaturally able to miss God's mercy all along the way. All along the way, he's fed them for 40 years. All along the way, they have not died of starvation or of thirst. They have not. God has always given them water when they needed it. And yet, He has been unfaithful to them. They've missed it. It's worth uh, trying to hold on to that, I think. 
creates a sense of uh, humility in our spirit, of, in our low times. You know, these are the sorts of things, maybe the Lord will bring this to mind in my low time. When, when the next low time comes is, John, you have an unbelievable ability to miss the good things I've done for you and you've missed the bad things you've done for you. I'm with you. You'd think over 40 years, though, they would have figured it out. And it's here, it's here that I think uh, we're going to sort of spin for a little while. I guess the one phrase I will say of care here is, um, anybody here who's, I mean, just pick 40 as the arbitrary number, 40 years or older, I think can testify that they're still waiting to be fixed, right? If you're old and in the Lord, I imagine you don't think you're fixed still. We're still waiting. And there's all sorts of things in life. You could be in the faith for decades and decades and decades and still trip and fall or relapse or disappoint. Old habits die hard, don't they? So I do want to say, as frustrating as this passage was, and it is so frustrating, when I finally figured out all the wire diagrams, oh my goodness, it's the first month of the 40th year, and they're in Kadesh. When I finally figured that out, it actually hurt my heart to even keep reading until I realized, well, the Lord probably would say to me, you do this all the time to me. And they really are better at some level. If we could keep going and do in numbers, you'd see some pretty remarkable things. So there's they're not they're not all bad. And there's some really beautiful things that I mean, one day one of these people will hear a giant, a nine foot tall giant profane the name of the Lord, and he will put a rock in his little kid's sling and take that guy down. I mean, really awesome things come out of these people. It's just we need more than forty years. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to read one verse, verse 6. I want to continue to build the pattern. So if you've heard this before, you're like, I know where this is going. Okay, I'm going to read one more verse, and I want you to sort of feel the rhythm about it. If you're new to numbers and you're visiting today and you feel no, no rhythm whatsoever, then just believe what I say. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Stop. Familiar? Some head nods? Yeah. We, this is old hat. This is like uh, classic football up the middle punt. This is, we know this play, right? What's going to happen next? You don't read. You don't want to guess, right? What's going to happen next? I mean, if, if, if they grumble, if we go through the story, right? They did this in the 11th chapter. We want meat. We want meat. We're tired of manna. Right? Moses and Aaron, oh, they fall on the foot. The Lord says what? Get out of my way. They want meat. I'll give them meat until it comes out of their nostrils. Next chapter, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. Who died and made you king? Get out of my way. Right? Then they say, we're not going to go into your land of promise. There's giants. The Lord says what? Get out of my way. 
And every time, right, Aaron and Moses intercede before the Lord, Lord, don't do this thing. Sons of Korah, three times in the 16th chapter, Moses and Aaron fell on their face before the Lord, interceding because the Lord was, would say things like this, move over so that I can consume them in a moment. Let me read verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, here it comes. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. What? Did I mention it's the first month of the 40th year? And that they're in the very same place that God had them when they rejected him the first time? I mean, I would think of all of the stories we've read so far, this might be the humdinger of them all. Potentially. They are postured. This would be like a child in the back of your minivan as you're pulling into Disney World and you have the tickets in your hand and you're sitting at the kiosk where they beep the thing on your hand. You're about to walk in. That would be like them wailing on the floor saying, it would be better had we never come here at all. Ah, the pain of it all. I mean, this might be the most disappointing expression of faithlessness that we've seen in the book. I mean, I expected the Lord would be rolling it, grabbing lightning bolts and sharpening lightning bolts. And I mean, I was, what does he say? Moses, go give him water. Give him water, Moses. He even says to Moses, he has this strange thing, like take your staff, but don't use your staff. It's interesting. Take your staff, but don't use it. Take your staff, but he says, I want you to assemble the congregation. I want you so that you are before their eyes, it says. And when you are before their eyes, it doesn't say touch the rock with the staff, like he's done in the past, by the way. That's the way it's always been done. He's done that in the past. It's not what he says. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. Come forth. I think, this is just me, but I think God is promoting Moses in front of the people. The people grumble against Moses. They grumble against Moses. And this is one of these like, almost grand finale sort of ways of pushing Moses back up. You remember, this is what's in my mind. When, when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and Jesus was napping and a huge gale came by and the wind and the waves were all over the boat and the disciples were fretting that they were going to die so they wake up Jesus in the back and they say to him, how can you sleep at a time like this? We're dying. And Jesus looks up. And he stares at the wind and the waves. And he says, be still. And the wind and the waves die down. And it says, and the disciples in fear said, who is this? Who with a word 
can command the wind and the waves? Just imagine if you were your one each Israelite, grumbling, all upset and frustrated because you don't have water, and the glory of the Lord shows down. First of all, you might think, oh, this might not have been a good decision, right? But let's just say you hung around, and before the eyes of Moses, he comes, and he rises up before you, and then out of his mouth, he looks at the rock, and out of his mouth simply says, come forth. I would, surely the Lord is with him. Why does God have mercy now? They've had 40 years to get it right. Shouldn't you have figured it out in 40 years? If of all the lessons learned in 40 years, one of them would be, don't ever say it would be better had we not come out of Egypt. Forty years. Now we're going to go ahead. We're going to look at Moses and, and what Moses does wrong. This is the section that always gets the attention. And you're going to feel like, if you're like most people, you're going to feel like, oh, that feels a little harsh. Seems like God was harsh. And we're going to deal with that for a little bit. And then we're going to kind of deal with the whole issue. Because really the story has happened, okay? This is why I think... Moses is poorly, under, or the penalty to Moses is a little bit poorly understood is because the whole story is not really meditated on. But here we are in the 10th verse. Let me just read what happens. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, who did he talk to? The people. God didn't say go talk to the people. God said go talk to the rock. Okay? He assembles the people and says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and the livestock. You know, Moses sort of has, I understand Moses' heart. Moses almost has a heart of 40 years, and you're still doing this? I'm enough of you. By year 40, if you're standing in the first month of the 40th year in the very place that God put us when he offered us the promised land and something that rebellious comes out of your mouth, you don't deserve water. That's Moses. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. The Lord says, Moses, because you didn't believe in me, you, can no longer, you will not lead these people into the promised land. Neither you, Aaron, you're not going either. And in fact, Aaron dies at the end of this chapter four months later. At 123, Moses dies not long after that at 120. (laughs) 
Now, originally, I had planned to sort of mediate the harshness of God with sort of circumstantial matters like, you know, ooh, that was pretty harsh of the Lord. One sin in Moses's can't ever go into the promised land. That seems kind of rough. And I wanted to come back and say, well, Aaron and Moses are 123 and 120 respectively. Is it really that harsh for the Lord to take them home? If you had an aunt who was 123 and she passed away, would you be like, whew, that was pretty harsh of the Lord. Took her before her time. Would you say that? Of course not. I mean, we, at one level, we should observe that God has almost supernaturally preserved Aaron and Moses longer than what we would normally have expected. And it's through their sinfulness that this supernatural perseverance is going away. That's the first thought. My other thought, just environmentally, was, well, how long is Moses going to live? I mean, even if he goes in the promised land, he can't have that many more years He's going to go across the river, go in the promised land, have a few wake-ups, a few breakfasts, cups of coffee, and then the Lord will say, okay, uncle, it's time. Yeah, he's not. He can't lead Israel into the next epic. You've got to die sometime. That's, that was my initial, how do I rescue God from the accusation of harshness speech? And I imagine there's some sort of balance in all of that. But the truth is, I think God appears harsh unless we think of what Moses actually did wrong. So what did Moses do wrong? He yelled at the people and he struck the rock. Well, that was the visible behavior, but that's not what the Lord cites. The Lord does not say to him, because you struck the rock with your stick, you're not going in. He didn't say that. Moses, the Lord says to Moses, because you did not believe in me. And correspondingly, because you did not show me holy to the people. In other words, Moses, because of your faithlessness, which had that behavior, which reflected poorly upon me before the eyes of the people, because of that, you cannot lead them into the promised land. In other words, Moses... I was trying to do something specific here. And you interrupted it. I wanted to give them water. And you told a different story. You you chose to characterize me as one who in the first month of the 40th year have run out of patience with them. And I have not. My initial statement here might be an overstretch, but it gets to the concept, and then, then I'll work it out. I think in a way, Moses and the Lord are representing two different religions right here. Two different religions. And we would call them two, let's just think of it in the terms of Christianity, two versions of Christianity. One that is pure and holy and one that is knockoff and dangerous. The knockoff says this. This is knockoff Christianity. 
I, I ask Jesus into my heart and he forgives me of my sins and he gives me his Holy Spirit. Okay, we're fine so far, okay? This is all good and well. Do that. Then begins the quote-unquote 40-year timeline during which time you need to figure it out. Like at the end of 40, whatever it is that the Lord's going to call you home, by that point, all those problems, you know the problems you have when you ask the Lord into your heart? All those little sins or addictive tendencies or areas of hardness? You have, we're going to wander this world, and when the Lord calls you home, you need to present yourself before him. You need to be worthy. You need to be able to come back to the place at the threshold of the promised land at the end of your life, and the Lord should be able to look at you and be like, yeah, yeah, you... You deserve the promised land. You've earned it. Like a test. Like you, your Christian life is on a 40-year test. And the purpose of salvation in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is so that over the duration of your life, on the way to the threshold of the promised land, you can do well enough to warrant the next step. That is not Christianity. That's knockoff. It's not Christianity. It sounds like it. But the truth of the matter is, in your 40th year, when you stand at the threshold of life, when you're coming to the Lord, you are in just as much need of grace and mercy as you are in day one. God does not give you his spirit so that you can earn it. God gives you his spirit because God loves you. We start, you know, when you come to Jesus, you're way over here. At least this is, this is the way I sort of view myself. Is I'm way here, and then there's the theoretical God, or, or, you know, only the John, the version of me that only God can see. And, the, you know, the knockoff, heretical view of Christianity is I get Jesus and I get the Holy Spirit and then progressively over my life, I get to here so that when I come before the throne of judgment, I pass. I'm not old, but the longer I'm in the Lord, this point gets farther away from me. My awareness of the distance grows. And the difficult, sort of the young thought, if I could just knock off that sin, if I could just take care of that thing, the truth is I don't even see the root of that thing. What's the deep sin that's even driving that thing? That takes 15 or 20 years to get to. Everything is slower and harder and more real. And the truth is you could be 40 years in the faith, still wake up tomorrow and do something just as disappointing as you did in year one. And you don't have to worry about it because God is merciful. 40th year, first month, place of departure, into the promised land. And what is God? God's behavior is as one who said, I gave them my word that I would bring them in. 40 years, I brought them back here and I'm bringing them in because I said I would. And they don't have to be perfect. We really do need a better Moses. We need one. We need one as Christ who is not 
going to grow impatient with us. You know, in the New Testament, the whole time Christ is preaching the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the blessings of the kingdoms, the Beatitudes, the hope, when he's saying, would not a good shepherd leave the 99 to find the one? Wouldn't a physician come to the sick and not the healthy? Didn't the Son of Man not come to seek and save that which is lost? And all of these messages, you know what's being thrown back in his face? Bahaha, the law of Moses says. We don't need Moses. We need Christ. Here's the truth. The truth of the matter is, to a person who belongs to Jesus, you can be drastically disappointing in your 40th year and God will still save you. If he's your God and you're his child, it's his word that he's faithful to. The Lord's Supper here. We're not called to the Lord's Supper. Now, when we approach the Lord's table, we certainly try to seek out ourselves and are aware of our sins so we can give them to the Lord. I mean, the sobriety before the Lord's table is honorable. But we don't come to the Lord's table like, mm, did I have a good week? Am I allowed to take the meal? That's heresy. We come to the Lord's table to remember what he did. He doesn't call you to remember what you did. He calls you to remember what he did. Now, we don't take this in hypocrisy, and we don't take this in unbelief. Do we take this when we're sinners? Absolutely. We take this because we're sinners. The reason God reminds us to remind ourselves of him is because our sinfulness continues throughout our life. And we need to remember that in the first month of the 40th year, at the very end of things, we will find a merciful God who is faithful to us because of his word and not our life. I'm going to invite the the praise team up. And uh, the first song is really just a gift to you just to sit and reflect. How have you been chasing after Are you chasing after holiness the wrong way and for the wrong reasons? Are you trying to do good things because you have to? Because one day it's going to be scrutinized? Or are you confident that at the end of things Christ will say, I said I would give you water. If you'd asked me, I'd have given you water that would have made you never thirst again. And through the joy of that, you do good things. What is your religion? Let me pray. Lord, we come to you not because we're holy, but because you're holy. We come to you not because we are without sin, but because you have forgiven sin. We come to you beneath the banner that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That as is written in the Psalms, you do not give us as our sins deserve.
We come boldly to you, Lord, to claim our hope through the work of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.